All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from upstate New York and joined, as usual, by my friend and producer, the man who keeps it all together, not just for himself, but also for us. He's that, <laughs> he's that kind of guy, Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi. Well, thank you. Yes. I, I don't know about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Have you sacrificed yourself? That's right. He sacrificed. But, uh, he's, do you hear that, people? He sacrificed himself for the podcast. <laughs> Good golly. Holy cow. Call, call HR. No, everything is okay. Good. Actually, I've been, I've been enjoying my summer. I've been working on an old sailboat and sort of uh, putting things back together and getting things running. I say old, and by old, I mean 90s. Yeah, well, <laughs> not, that's pretty old. A wooden, a wooden boat. It's yeah, not so. from like the 1800s. <laughs> that's right. But uh, yeah, no, I've been uh, doing some restoration work on it, and uh, I'm hoping to get it out on the water by the end of the summer. Wow, that's so exciting. Um, yeah, where, yeah. Where will you take fun. it? Uh, somewhere uh, small and shallow, uh-huh. <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Your next door neighbor's kiddie pool. <laughs> I think uh, my next neighbor, my neighbor's pool would be great. <laughs> okay, you have to promise me. First of all, I want photographs. But will you get at, like a, one of those white? captain's hats please and take oh, a picture of yourself in the I, white captain's hat i think i might hat. go uh full thurston howell the third oh yeah gilligan's <laughs> island reference fantastic yeah. all right we man. haven't had that in a while no it's definitely been a few episodes <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, Thurston Howell oh, yeah. and Lovey Howell. Um, well, that sounds so cool, man. I, I love it. The deck you built up here is going strong. Peanut loves oh, it. Nice. She uses it as her lookout point because it's quite oh, a bit higher. And yep, she just yep. sits there and scans her kingdom. So, <laughs> by the way, she um, five minutes ago chased another bear. Off. Oh, and, um, that is scary. And and over the weekend, uh, did the same. So that's her favorite activity. And I mean, so far, thank God, the black bears upstate find her terrifying, which is amusing to yeah, me. Yeah, that's but, good. Um, yes. <laughs> so they always just run off or run up a tree, and then she. You know, I can always hear her when she's barking, and so I sort of go out and see what's going on. But, you know, basically she lives outside now. She's just outside yeah. all day. And I mean, it's a, it's a good life It's a there. great yeah. life. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> yep. really, really great life. Well, for as great as it is being up there, I know you came back to New York, and you visited Picture House in the Small Darkroom for a really lovely event. Yes, it was great. I mean, I, I go back and forth pretty much I'm up here for like a week, 10 days. Then I go into the city for like four days. So There's a lot of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, my last trip in was to hang out with the folks from Picture House in the small dark room. Um, we had some stuff to discuss and Taylor was up from Oaxaca and had yeah. never met those guys. So 
We went down there. They gave him the tour. Also, Chris Graves was doing an event that night. So Mm -hmm. that was really fantastic. Chris gave a great talk um, in the picture house in the small dark room, um, little bookshop area. It's just so fun. It's it's such a guy. I love those guys. Anyway, I actually got to see new equipment from the last time I was there, which is they have this new Fuji mini lab that just... It was yes. so friggin' cool, man. I have to say, like, it really made me think about wanting to get dust off the old camera. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the joy of flipping through, you know, small prints. And, of course, with this machine that they have makes the old drugstore print seem quite sad because <laughs> the technology is so much more advanced. But anyway, oh, it it's is cool. So I told better. you about yeah, it, yeah. right? You were jealous yeah, that I saw yes. it. Yeah, I, I used to love dropping off film at the drugstore and getting that packet back with the envelope. And uh, But these are, these. this is that experience, but the prints are much more archival. This is a, a Fuji Frontier printer and it's Fuji paper. And they are offering 25% off of all Minilab prints uh, through the end of the summer. Yeah. I think that ends September 20th. This is actually all just starting this Friday as of this episode release. So they will print on glossy or matte with or without borders. Uh, everything, I mean, from 4x6 to 11x14. Which is amazing. 14 Fuji prints. I mean, yes, yeah, I know. That's fantastic. I know. Yep. And they, <laughs> by the way, when I was there, I saw these tests they were doing because the machine had just come in. Mm-hmm. So I saw like, I think I saw three different images printed three or four different ways. It, it was just so cool. I mean, again, like the joy of that experience of holding a big bundle of small prints in your hand, mm-hmm. but knowing that you've been able to fine tune this right to your vision and and so it's 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 a really great meeting of sort of that old world but with this (laughs) brand new technology Uh, by the way it's sort of amazing that we're referring to old drugstore prints as old world it's not it's not like it's like um you know carlton watkins with some glass plate in a uh, covered wagon but anyway you get the idea Hey, you know what if they did that that i know that would be really cool i think that's over at penumbra at the penumbra okay, foundation that's right <laughs> yes it is for, for all glass plate and tin type people this is a free promo for the penumbra foundation <laughs> but um if you want to check out their new mini lab features uh you can visit their website phtsd Picture House the Small Darkroom dot com, or you could call them at two one two two four three zero one seven zero. And let me just say, I know this sounds cheesola, but uh, the folks are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm so glad a random wacky word makes you so happy. That makes me happy. (laughs) The folks over there are so nice, everyone. Mm -hmm. So don't be like at all shy about calling over there. The gang that works there are just the nicest people. Whenever I'm over there, everyone's just like, hey, Sasha. It's just really like a family. So even though it's a big setup on many floors. and Right. It's a pretty high-end clientele. But it feels really like a a big sprawling family and everyone's super cool so try Mm -hmm. you know develop a relationship with those guys you will be rewarded anyway on to the episode it's a great episode i spoke with the photographer andrew moore who it turns out is my neighbor up here and that was lovely and i just i enjoyed this conversation so much what did what did you think 
Yeah, you know, there are so many parts of this. First of all, it's one of those great process practice conversations. Yes. That, you know, you just learn so much from listening to you and Andrew talk. You actually have this really interesting back and forth where you're talking about what makes an Andrew Moore photograph look like an Andrew Moore <laughs> photograph. And you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the conversation where I thought we needed to bring in a uh, psychiatrist to break it down. That's right. <laughs> and it was, you were talking about the, the similarities, the things that run through the different bodies of work. And Andrew is the kind of person, I really appreciate this, who has that sort of desire, that drive to reinvent oneself, you know, every time they, they start something new. And he's very interested in the, the differences between the bodies of work. But you were both really kind of talking about the same thing, the way the photos communicate. And it was just a really fascinating Yeah, it was really funny. I mean, I was yeah. really complimenting him. And yet he wanted to sort of come at it from a different angle. So we were mm -hmm. sort of at cross purposes in a strange way and yet not. And um, yeah. but he's so lovely and genial. And, and it, that's the kind of conversation that could have gone sideways with a grump. But um, <laughs> no, yeah, it didn't go sideways at all. It didn't go sideways at yeah. all. So. Yeah. And of course, you you talk about his mentor, uh, yeah. Emmett Gowan, and he was a huge influence on his work. And in yet a way, not. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, and yet not. Because, you know, he speaks about Emmett as this, this father figure and then sort of gets out in the world and sees this other kind of photography and is, you know, wrestles with this idea of where he is you know, between the sort of modern and postmodern art world. Uh, and then he runs into Andy Grumberg, uh, you know, exposes him to the works of, you know, Sherry Levine and others. And uh, yeah, that's that's just it's a great, fascinating process. No, it's process. great yeah. because you really get how different people influence you. And mm -hmm. some feels very direct, or I should say, you know, some influence is very direct on your work. And some influences more direct on your process or on how you just think about art making and yes. or supportive or cheerleading, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. or just having someone there who you can talk to. Anyway, it's it's fascinating. These different people. Meyerowitz was also That's someone right. who had an early uh, Joel Meyerowitz important influence. So Putting those like together, it's so interesting. Emmett Gowan, Joel Meyerowitz, Andy Grunberg introducing him to other people's work. Like it's really fascinating how, you know, you go through that sort of washing machine and what comes out. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I loved that conversation. Anyway, we are really now just talking about the entire yes. show. So um, why don't we get to it, Michael? If you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Andrew Moore. Andrew Moore, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. Thanks so much for doing this with me today. It's, it's great to have a chance to talk with you. And thank you, Sasha, for inviting me. I'm super excited to chat with you. So you and I are neighbors, which is really fun. Yeah. I'm in Woodstock, as the uh, podcast listeners know, and you're in Kingston, which is just a town 10 minutes away. Um, yes. Yeah, so yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I moved to uh, Midtown Kingston or moved my studio to Midtown Kingston about four years ago, and it's actually been super amazing to see what's happening here and all the people I've met. And so it's a, 
I feel like the, the timing's been great. And, uh, and I'm glad to know you're a neighbor. Yeah, there's such a great photo community here. So calling all photographers uh, want to come out to our neck of the woods. It's pretty, pretty wonderful. Totally. So we start every podcast with a just the, the artists, uh, the guests journey, you know, where they were born, raised, how they got to where they are today. And as everyone knows, I, I always encourage people to take their time because I'm always really interested in people's life stories. So if you don't mind, please uh, tell us about yourself. So I was born in Connecticut in 1957. Uh, my dad worked in the city. He was a architect. My mom was a book editor. Although my parents were actually originally from the South, my dad grew up in uh, Northern Florida and North Carolina, and my mom's folks are from Eastern Tennessee. So I'm partially a Southerner, in fact, and I spent a lot of time in the South. But anyway, I grew up in the Northeast. Although I thought when I was a kid, I actually had a small dark room that I shared with my brother. My dad was a pretty serious amateur photographer, always loved cameras. He had this small folding Agfa camera that I was always really amazed by. And one of the really nice things he did was he helped my brother and I build this dark room. I was about 12. And so I was uh, developing black and white roll film, even had a bulk film loader. Uh, making prints in this little dark room when I was 12 or 13. And, you know, that's more than 50 years now of going back of making pictures. But I was always interested in color, too. So I did some painting in high school. You know, I liked photography, but I was always very interested in color. There's something just, I was always very attached to that. And then I ended up going to Princeton and thinking I was going to get into architecture. But uh, at that time, you know, the school of postmodernism was very much in sway. This would be in the mid-70s, and I wasn't really interested in the theoretical practice of architecture. I was really interested in making things. And I was very fortunate that at that time at Princeton, Emmett Gowan had just been hired a few years before. And he had already had a kind of extraordinary reputation on campus as just being this mesmerizing talker and teacher. And so I think in 1976, I took my first class with him. And it was a really transformational experience. I, I would say in some ways he became not just a mentor, but also a, a father figure for me. And one of the fortunate things about that program at Princeton was it was very loose. People could kind of do what they wanted, but also since there were so few students who were actually interested in kind of majoring in art at that time, most people were pre-med or pre-law, pre-business or something. So I was the only student in my class of a thousand who was actually taking photography. So wow. in a way, I, I had this kind of apprenticeship, like a like a kind of medieval apprenticeship for three years. So I learned, you know, directly from Emmett. And we all there were also some other great visiting artists like uh, Frederick Sommer, Jim Dow, Joel Meyerowitz. There was uh, Alan Hess. And so when I was 19, I was working with an 8x10 camera, developing... Uh, sheet film and trays. Then they built a little color darkroom in when I was a junior. So I was uh, making C prints and uh, actually making color contact prints. So uh, I had an amazing education. I mean, or, and uh, I actually never went to graduate school because, you know, I felt after three years, I, I'd learned a tremendous amount. I wasn't really going to learn that much more mm -hmm. by going to graduate school. Also, I should mention that at that time at Princeton, Besides Emmett teaching photography, there was also Peter Bennell, who had the first endowed chair in the history of photography in the United States. So he was there. So between Emmett 
And then Peter Bennell and all his classes on the history of photography, I just had this extraordinary education. Yeah, so, sounds amazing. Yeah. So I was super lucky to have uh, been there at that time. And of course, the late 70s were kind of a golden age in terms of, I think, freedom and uh, kind of flexibility and people doing what they just felt like doing. So I'm 22. I graduate and I decided I, I was going to go live in New Orleans. So I had a friend who was already living down there. I went down and I lived in New Orleans for about two years. And that's where I did my first kind of first independent project. I got a small grant from the Chamber of Commerce in New Orleans. And I ended up photographing mostly interiors of these businesses. Some were holdovers from the kind of 19th century workshops like a box factory or a coffin factory or ice, an ice house, uh, a raw furriers. And, and I, th I think most of those businesses haven't existed in New Orleans for a long time. But at that time in 1980, they were still kind of hanging on. And so that was the first uh, kind of independent, that was kind of like going to graduate school for me. Was that self-guided? Did you write a grant proposal wanting to do that project or how did that come about? Because obviously the sort of parameters and, and that sort of genre, that word is always tricky, but anyway, that you were working in then is sort of where you are now or where your career has been. So was that your choice? You know, that's a good question. I mean, by default, if one was working with an 8 by 10 camera, I mean, there was Ache and Walker Evans and Weston. I mean, there was kind of this established canon uh, certainly with Evans of a kind of documentary approach. And, and Jim Dow was very much a, a member of that community. He actually had printed for Evans, I believe. So that's kind of where, you know, one started if you were shooting large format. But I have to say, when I saw Joel Meyerowitz's uh, very early proofs from his Cape Light project, so this would have been in 76 or 77, I was blown away by the color, the, the color that one could get out of a 8 by 10 contact from a, from a negative and so I kind of knew right away, okay, color's what I want to do. And it's also separate from Emmett and his whole thing. Uh, he was such a master printer. I mean, would have been hard to surpass him. I mean, uh, probably impossible. But color was a whole other thing. And he wasn't, he shot some color negatives, but not that many. So I think that taking the documentary approach for this kind of formal black and white, but then segueing that into color and adding this kind of emotional quality was kind of a thread that I've been pursuing probably from the beginning. So in a sense, you're right. I mean, that did sort of set my course, but I also was trying to find what was possible, what was new, what was something that I could do that previous generations hadn't done. Do you remember thinking, you know, I need to make sure I'm not, you know, right in Emmett's footsteps since I've worked oh, so yeah. closely with him. And did you talk to him about that or was that something you just sort of kept to yourself? It's a really interesting question because they were clearly students and I, I won't go into it, but they were clearly students who fully imitated Emmett and, and, mm -hmm. and really, you know, he was the master. He was almost yeah. like a kind of prophet. And so it was very easy to just follow in his wake. I was always a little bit more rebellious, even as a teenager, uh -huh. I have to say. <laughs> I got into a lot of trouble. And I, I never wanted to be a follower. So as mm -hmm. much as I I admired Emmett and I felt obligated is the wrong word, but I felt a kind of t like he'd given so much. I needed to give back. Gratitude, um, maybe. Yeah, I yeah. was. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I really had to go my own way. Mm -hmm. And 
I think he recognized that. I think it was sometimes we got into, I think I had a kind of more edgy relationship with him at times because I, I did, I wasn't exactly a follower. So yes, I never spoke to him about it. I think we both recognized it. And I think, you know, I remember uh, when Joel Meyer, which was, was there, he was there for a semester and I was, I had made some black and white five by sevens. I had made some, I don't know, straight down pictures of some old books or something. And he was like, I'm really mad at you. You're like doing exactly what your teacher was doing. And I was kind of like, oh, you're mad at me. And oh, I don't know. But then I realized that, you know, he was right in a sense, you know, it wasn't my job as a student just to imitate the teacher. It was to find my own way. So yes, that was very much a part of my Well, it's interesting because you said that he was sort of a father figure and you've almost just described a father-son relationship, right? Of you needing to find your own path and maybe there being some friction in that, but that's the way it is, right? That's that's ultimately what has to happen is certainly it's a very healthy thing when the child, you know, finds their own way in life. Yeah. No, you you know, you need to absorb all the good lessons, but then you have to separate yourself. And I, I was very conscious of that. You know, Emma is an incredibly charismatic figure and, you know, it, it would not be hard to kind of fall more closely into an aligned orbit with his interests and ways of expression. Well, you know, you've been making large format pictures, 810, and and then I know you sometimes use a digital, I think you use a phase one sometimes now, and an amazing camera. And, you know, you've really stuck with a certain tableau, a certain way of looking at the world where color is obviously extremely important to you, as is scope and buildings, structures, I would say, are sort of the cornerstone of your work is the way you photograph structures right, in, the, in the landscape. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, but I'm saying there's a whole another part to the story that you may or may not know. So, you know, I so I do this project in New Orleans. It's okay. I, and actually... <laughs> I, I come back to New York and for another teacher I knew said, oh, I know this guy who's writing for popular photography. This is between 1981. His name's Andy Grunberg. You you know, maybe you should go see him. <laughs> so I, I make an appointment. I call him. I come into the offices at Popular Photography or Modern, one of those magazines. And I leave my, my box of 100 8x10 contact prints from New Orleans. And I come back and like a week later, and he goes, well, I liked these two. You know, one one was like of a broom factory and one was like of a, a coroner's office or a coroner's like a examination room, kind of grim picture with like bloodstains. He goes, you know, but I'm really into this these other people, you know, this like picture generation and people who are not, you know, like Sherry Levine, people who aren't taking pictures but are using other people's pictures. And I was like, wow, I this is something was so out of my way of thinking. Yeah. And, you know, because modern photography had actually, I think, published in 1980 a portfolio of Joel Sternfeld from his mm-hmm. American Prospects book. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly influential yeah, to me. Yeah, I was like, wondering wow, about that. Yeah. That was, you know, those pictures were super remarkable. Like, they had, like, depth and color and narrative and detail and scale and, and uh, uh, kind of everything that I kind of aspired to at that moment. So I become aware that there's this whole other approach to photography. And so I continued, I, you know, the next project I worked on, I was living down on South Street 
uh, right near the fish market. So for a couple of years, I, I, I made a little collective. There was a guy named Jeff Burkell and a woman named Barbara Mensch, and we formed this collective called the South Street Survey. We got some grant money from the New York State Council on the Arts and some other places. And we actually did a show at the Municipal Arts Society in 1985. And I was doing large format color at night, and Jeff was doing black and white, and Barbara was doing portraits. But at the same time, I had been teaching in Buffalo at through a place called the Center for Media Arts, and I was teaching high school students in the summer in Buffalo. And you know, Buffalo was the was the hotbed of you know people like Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, and uh, Charles Clough, and and the whole kind of new approach to considering images and authority and originality and so forth. And I really began to absorb some of that information. And I realized that, okay, I would, sh- I would go out and I would shoot, you know, 50 sheets and I might have three really good pictures. And I had all this other material that was, you know, had cost a lot of money, but wasn't, you know, weren't quite really together as images. So one day I was in I think I was working on a light box and I saw these two negatives that had just happened to be placed on top of each other. Uh, one was shot during the day, one was shot at night, and they formed this kind of perfect unity. So mm-hmm. I printed them and the picture was called Native Dork and that was the first kind of sandwiched montage I came up with. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I went back and I reorganized all my negatives basically. So rather than like pictures from New Orleans or pictures from South Street or pictures from Chicago. I reorganized them like a filmmaker would. I had like close-ups and portraits and details and wide views. And I kind of organized them by formal principles. And then I started just making thousands of test prints where I would like layer, sometimes it was two negatives, sometimes it was three negatives. Uh, I got into working with Xerox and drawings and paintings and scratching the negatives and chemically altering them. This is all pre-Photoshop, so I'm doing this all mechanically or chemically. And I came up with a series called Reworks. I think that I wish I showed that in uh, Hartford at Real Artways in 1986. It was pretty cool. It was kind of my version of like re-photography, you know, taking my work and then creating a new context. And that's what, what actually my first show, which was with uh, Julie Saul and Nancy Lieberman, uh, that, that was also in 1986. That was that work that I showed. And so for about seven years, I, I made these crazy montages, uh, sometimes with like one black and white negative and one color negative or several black and whites. And and I did a lot of uh, commercial illustrations for all kinds of magazines. And I did a bunch of shows. And eventually that all kind of came to a dead end because, you know, there just wasn't any place to go. And then Photoshop came around and you could do all that much more simply. But the point is that all the lessons I learned from that about making a kind of density of the composition and working with layers and is what later really informed my work when I went back to kind of making straight pictures in like 1995, 96, when, you know, I began to see the world differently through layers. And so that whole detour really informed the good pictures I made later on. And I, and I tell my students that you know, it took 20 years of kind of experimentation to finally make the kinds of pictures that I really wanted to when I was in my early 40s. Well, I didn't know that. And that, I mean, I know your montages, but I didn't, you know, I know the ones that you have on your website. Yeah. I didn't know that. And that's a great story. And I think it's it's incredibly informative and instructive, this idea of 
how one thing leads to another. You don't know where yeah. things are going to go and you have to be able to sort of sit in that space of process and just sort of trust that one thing will lead you to the next thing and and you don't know where you're going to land. And it's all important, right? I mean, it's, you know, mistakes, um, successes, they're really of equal importance as far as I'm concerned when it comes yeah, to I mean, I, learning and growing. I mean, I think that was probably the most important lesson that I learned from Emmett was, you know, he was always stressing that one had to trust one's intuitions. Mm -hmm. And that really was something that stuck with me, of course. And, and that failure was really important. Like failing was important because, but that was a long journey. I didn't actually know where it was going to, where it was going to lead. But the point is that I have made this big detour to come back to straight imagery to some degree, but there's a lot behind that return to picture making that well, way. Well, let's talk about that because what you what you said and what you underlined, and I know this is very important to you because I read a lot of interviews and saw some videos, some talks you gave in preparation for today. That's the word layers. So let's talk about how layers inform your picture making now and what that really means without assuming that the listeners know what you're talking about. So spell that out, how that practically is, is applied. So layering has different components, but basically it's about creating a kind of graphic intensity in the image. So it can be spatial, it can be a kind of narrative layering, it can work with color, but I would say on the first level it's about creating a, a space that the viewer can enter. It invites the viewer in, but it doesn't do all the work for the viewer. And it entices you to enter deeper and deeper into the picture. And, and that's one of the really important things for me is leaving room in the picture for the viewer to enter. And I think that the layering is kind of what kind of draws the viewer, the viewer's eye, the viewer's attention through the picture into different parts. And ultimately, the layers also kind of create a kind of internal movement. And, you know, ideally, what, the picture is like a perpetual motion machine. It just, the viewer's eye kind of rotates and moves through the image, almost like a, a kind of, a, what has to say, a Mobus strip, where, you know, you kind of, it's like an endless movement or like a, like one of those spaces in an Escher print where, mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of cycle through and you move through. And I think, ideally, when a picture that's well-layered in a sense, will continually move the viewer's eye around the, around the picture space. So we're talking about things like a tree in the very foreground, a, a structure in the middle to the left, uh, and then... Uh, uh, yes, architecture is important in that. I mean, that's, derrick or something often. Yeah. Uh, and then the horizon line or the clouds or the, you know, in the, in the background or that sort of thing is what you're Right. Sort of I mean, it's, it's ultimately a kind of patterning. I mean, you have to, I mean, you could use the word layer, but you could also use pattern. I mean, it's a kind of pattern recognition where the pieces fit together in such a way that it's integrated but it's also you move from one thing to the next. So creating movement in the frame. So what's your first big body of work? Of course, I know the answer to this, but what's, <laughs> I feel the need to say that. Um, what's your first big body of work that sort of all of a sudden gallerists become interested in you? I mean, I, I, I know you, I heard you working with Julie, and but what's the moment that feels like, hmm, 
I maybe I have a career going here or something. I would say that would that would definitely be in my early 40s when I did the first show of the Cuba work mm-hmm. from Havana with Yancey Richardson. That would be in 1999. So at that point, I'm 42. And again, I felt like I was kind of an overnight success after 20 long years of preschool right. you know, experimentation work. So and, and that show, I think there were about 10 pictures in that show. I think that was one of the best shows I ever did. I mean, just... There was space, there was color, there was narrative detail, there was history, there was relevance to the moment. I mean, it's that meeting point between, you know, kind of documentary and and fine art that I think was what I had been trying to do for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I, I think that's the first time I really achieved that level of work that I was pursuing. And you still work with Yancey, so that's a good relationship. I still work with Yancey, yeah. We've been together... It's like almost a marriage. 25 I mean, it's years, like, yeah. Actually, almost 30 years. It's crazy. So oh, I've my done, gosh. I, oh, right. I think yeah. uh, I have a show coming up in November, so that'll be my eighth solo show with her. Well, that's and those a are wonderful eight, relationship. And those, are, and, those are, and those are eight different bodies of work. So just a uh, note to listeners, Andrew has a show, and, and we will mention it again when it's when it opens, but in November at Yancey's in, in Chelsea. Thank you. Right. So, all right, so you do the Cuba work, and how and this sort of starts you out on this journey of going around the world and dis- right. <laughs> and examining through photography um, right. different places and, right. you know, very sort of prescient, uh, I mean, <laughs> where you've been to, but you made an incredible body of work in Russia and I think Ukraine and... In the um, Ukraine also. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were kind of getting along at that point. This is 2003. I mean, there, you know, when I was in Sevastopol, which is down in the Crimean Peninsula, I mean, their navies were literally parked side by side. And I think the sailors just partied at night together. I think it was, you know, there was cultural conflicts about what is a Ukrainian church versus the Russian Orthodox, you know, there was culturally, architecturally, but the political, I mean, there might be some clouds on the on the horizon, but they were more like friendly cousins at that mm-hmm. point. Well, yeah. every family uh, eventually. Yeah. So now over the past 10, 12 years, you've, you've stuck to the United States, it, it seems like with these. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I should, ex- I should explain that a little bit. So I was in you know, in the early mid nineties, I was, I did this project in Times Square that, you know, I loved. It was kind of the beginning of my, you know, it was like, I was trying to montage these negatives and, I was, and someone said to me, Hey, you know, it's just like the pictures as they are. So anyway, <laughs> so I'd photograph these theaters in Times Square and that kind of led me to Cuba to the idea of photographing theaters there. And of course, once I got there, I realized that the streets were a theater. The, the city of Havana was like a was like a 24-hour performance. I mean, there was so much stuff going on. Everything was, you know, you could just sit, you could just stand on a street corner and make a great picture, just like the world came to you. So I spent about four years in Cuba, and that that overlapped with a long long travels to Russia and, and Ukraine. And then I also ended up in Bosnia and Serbia. You know, I ha- I'm a kind of uh, Cold War baby so like and I'd always been interested I traveled to Czechoslovakia in the early 80s because I was interested to like go behind the Iron Curtain see what communism was like see what see what that was really about and so I was interested in all these countries and Romania and then I ended up in Vietnam although I wasn't I was not eligible for the draft I just missed it by like two years my brother was but I wasn't 
And then I, in, in 2007, I, I spent a month in China and I had my, my tan camera, I had two assistants, you know, and I, I didn't get a single picture. This is in China uh, that I liked. I mean, I shot wow. like 200 sheets of eight by 10. There was one picture that was pretty good of a theater, but it was so cold and damp in the theater that the film buckled in the holder during the long exposure. So like the yeah. one picture I wanted was ruined. So anyway, that was kind of crushing disappointment. And I realized that the problem was I didn't really know I didn't know deeply what I was looking at. I mean, I, I I saw things, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand intimately what they meant. I didn't understand the relation to me. I didn't. There was just I I couldn't handle kind of being such a outsider anymore. And, and that's the point. Uh, Two thousand seven, when I decided, you know, I'm going to come back to the United States and I'm going to work from a culture that I know, a place I'm invested in. You know, just kind of return to my my roots as a I guess as an American photographer. And so that's when I went, I, so I ended up going to Detroit in early 2008, and that sparked this whole series of projects, you know, Detroit, and then Nebraska, South Dakota, and then more recently in Alabama. And so that was a very conscious decision to come back to my home, playing on the home field, so to speak. And I think that's actually the kind of high watermark of my career is that, that these projects in the U.S. where, you know, I spoke the language, I understood the people, even though you know, politically, we might have been far apart, but, you know, I, I liked people who are not like me. I like trying to make, bridging that, those gaps. And so, um, yeah. Well, it's funny because now I know you're doing a project on the Hudson Valley. So it seems yeah. like you're getting closer and closer, you know, from Detroit <laughs> to yeah. to the Plains states, to Alabama, yeah. which is closer to where your family, you know, northern right. Florida, as you said, and yeah. and your dad's Tennessee. side of the family, right, and now where you actually live, you're sort of getting closer and closer to home. Right, which which I haven't done in such a long time. I think I haven't really shot my own circumstances since, you know, maybe living on South Street or when I lived in Long Island City in the mid-80s. I, I, sh I didn't really finish a project out there, but I certainly photographed the kind of wasteland of Long Island City in that time. But yeah, this is very different to be kind of working directly from the landscape that I'm living in and looking at every day. I wonder, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that a lot of artists do this. I think writers do this too. I was a young writer and I studied writing and then I was screenwriting. And I feel like when we're young, we want to sort of tell stories that are not our own lives right. oh, necessarily. Yeah, and then <laughs> as we get yeah. older, we have a little distance in a way and we want to return home and, and explore our, our history. I think that's a natural process. I think when you're young, you definitely want to go out in the world and, and experience that otherness, you know, and that as one gets older, you know, you, you find the same values, but within the world you occupy, you know, within yeah. directly in front of you. And I think there, there's challenges to that, you know, to, you know, because in some sense you're dealing with something very ordinary as opposed to something really crazy and exotic and mm -hmm. unlike anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it has its own challenges for sure. So when you did the Detroit work, which is like all your work, in incredibly aesthetically really masterful and all your work is, is so incredibly compelling because as you mentioned earlier, you've sort of really focused on how to provide a lot for the viewer. And, you know, what I think you meant and what I mean by that is that it's not a picture you're going to look at and for a second and move on. There's so much detail 
that you stand there, whether you're in front of a large picture of yours and some of your, your photographs, your prints are quite large, or whether you're looking on your computer screen, you know, your eyes are just going back and forth and back and forth and picking out so many different details and you sort of get in further in further in further in and which is just a wonderful incredibly engaging experience thank you that's great i mean that's that's my that's my dream you know that's what i'm that's what i'm after yeah well i I think you're just absolutely brilliant at it and i was very aware of it i mean obviously you know i know your work quite well for many many years but just really sitting with it over the past number of days i was incredibly aware of my eye movement i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's funny right because really we're aware of just going back and forth and scanning like really scanning and all the little reveals and little treasures. Oh, there's a bird there. There's um, a, a little decrepit bush there I didn't even notice the, the first few times I, I looked or uh, whatever. But I, I think that's that's just such a gift of, of your work is that it does provide the viewer with so much if, if they just are patient and you just get sucked in. So when you made the Detroit work, I know that that was a period of time where we really started talking about, you know, what it means to go into a community that you're not from. And I think particularly this yeah. this got yeah. sparked because we're talking about a very old, longstanding black community in Detroit. And so, you know, how do you think about that? How did How did that feel? when that conversation was starting to sort of heat up right around that time? That's a that's an excellent question. And I'll just preface it by saying that when I went to, which is basically 2008, 2009, so that's the recession. That's mm-hmm. when Detroit had hit absolute rock bottom, you know, yep. rock, rock bottom. So I- hey, Andrew, let me just jump in here for yes, one second I, and say, yeah, for sure. people who don't know this, I think Detroit went into like receivership or it was a really- So it was a very, it wasn't just, I mean, the whole country was in such dire straits, but Detroit really was in a very specific, um, they had a lot of really difficult political. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had everything. Scandals, corruption. It was just a terrible, terrible time for this And the legacy of decades of bad decisions, too. Yeah. It wasn't just. And it had been a a great American city. So there had been a a lot of money in Detroit at one time. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. One of the richest cities in America. Yeah. You know, fourth largest city in America at one point. You know, just very, the decline actually starts in the late 50s, the population decrease. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the highways, the car factories being moved out, the racism, the redlining, you know, the riots. I mean, just on the busing. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Coleman, the mayor. I mean, it's it's a it's a long thread that mm-hmm. led to two thousand eight mm-hmm. and two thousand. But anyway, your question is very interesting because my point is when I was there photographing. First of all, there was nobody. There. I never saw anyone. I mean, I mean, there were barely any policemen. I mean, it was so empty. I just mm-hmm. was kind of blown away so i mean i really had to work hard to find people to put into my pictures right. honestly yeah you know i went to the rouge plant on a summer afternoon in 2008 i mean this is a place where a hundred thousand people had been working at one time there were like five security guards it was staggering yeah. so the empty you know so i was so focused on that and you know there was some critic i'm going to just segue here for a second 
you know, there was some critic who said, oh, you know, we don't, we, we need pictures of like out of work. You know, the, the, we will tell the story of the recession by having pictures of out of work auto workers. And I was thinking, no, you know, we've seen those pictures. We, we need to show how really emptied out it all is. There is no one here. Anyway, so then in 2010, my book comes out and, I, and you know, the whole ruin porn thing, uh, I think there was an article in Guernica magazine that was kind of the first broadside. And I was unprepared, honestly. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that I had been really thinking about. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm accused of being a pornographer and I'm, you know, I'm not telling the story about the evils of capitalism and racism. And it, I was blindsided, to be honest, when it first came out. And maybe that's my, maybe that's a weakness that I didn't foresee that. I mean, I, I think I was pressing enough to, to know that Detroit was kind of the story of the moment. But I didn't understand what all the kind of blowback would be from that. In hindsight, you know, I have a number of things to say. I mean, I, I think the work is still incredibly poignant. I think, you know, Detroit has rebuilt itself incredibly. I mean, there's still a lot of empty parts to it, but it's made a remarkable comeback, mm-hmm. which is I never expected. I thought it would take 30 years for the downtown of Detroit to ever come back. But um, what's his name? Dan Gilbert has been like a kind of Medici for Detroit. I mean, he's bought up so much property and renovated it and fixed it. And, you know, whatever you think about him, he's actually spent the extra money to really make it beautiful again, especially the downtown. But in terms of, you know, someone said to me, oh, you know, if you're going to photograph the ruins of Detroit, you need to have a a degree in sociology and be a good writer. I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that that's my, that's not me. That's not, I mean, I brought a certain perspective to to that story at that moment you know Camilio Vigara did his thing the the French boys did theirs I mean I think everyone kind of provided a different view a different facet of that story my pictures may be kind of the most aesthetic I mean I know I'm sort of considered like the the godfather of ruin porn but I think as as a visual storytelling the book still holds up very much. First of all, I think it's amazing that you sort of absorbed that and then carried on and and kept making your pictures because I'm sure that that was not easy. And these things are extremely complicated and the pictures, I think, stand up and... It is complicated. I mean, it's, I don't, I just don't think, you know, photographs can do certain things extraordinarily, but, you know, I don't think Karl Marx could have made a picture book out of Das Kapital. You know, I think that there's certain kinds of analysis that lend themselves to words, but I I think what I was doing was really showing a very specific moment in time. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, I think it's really important uh, that you just carried on with your work and gave us these next two really extraordinary bodies of work, Dirt Meridian and Blue Alabama. So how do you wind up... um, out there. Yeah, out there. Yeah. And, and also, at what point did you start using digital in some of your pictures? And and, and just being the little nerd geek question. But No, um, that's, a great, that's a great question. I'm, because... I'm really curious what the... I know that obviously for nighttime pictures, it, it makes sense. But, but what was the advantage um, in your mind? So I actually had been experimenting with digital photography since like 2000. I, I got to know Photoshop very early on, even in I think the the mid 90s I was using Photoshop. So I was an early adopter of digital, but I didn't actually I didn't make any kind of serious 
gallery pictures with it until actually the the project out uh, the Dirt Meridian project. So the Detroit project is the last project I made, which I fully shot on film, four by five and eight by ten. When I went out west to South Dakota and Nebraska and those states along the hundredth meridian, I actually had to use a, a digital camera because um, we ended up attaching the camera to a plane. And of right. course, it would be very hard to have a film camera attached to the wing of a plane. I mean, mm-hmm. that would just be <laughs> uh, very awkward uh, to mid-flight reloading that. So anyway, you know, uh, the phase one back, the, I think it was called the IQ-180, had just come out, had 80 megapixels that had a terrible, they used a Mamiya body, which was awful, but I could make a really high resolution picture with that back. And so I actually... I don't know how I could afford, but anyway, in 20, I guess 2013 or the end of 2012, I actually invested in one of these cameras. So all the aerial pictures in Durban Radian were shot with that. On the ground, it's kind of a mixture, some 8x10, a little 4x5, and then some digital handheld as well. But I should just say that after Detroit, I had actually been shooting at West previous to Detroit, but I had kind of given up. And then after the Detroit book and the shows and so forth, I just knew that I didn't want to go to Toledo or, you know, Cleveland. Yeah, Rust Belt. I just, you know, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I wanted to do something about America, but very different. And, and you know, this part of the country, the High Plains, interested me because it was so empty, because people, nobody went there. And yet it had a, such an interesting history. And so I took that project on and uh, I kind of spent, total was about 10 years, but the last three years were the kind of intense where I got most of the work done. And uh, that's where I, I started using the digital camera as well. It's funny. I usually don't ask a lot of tech questions, but I'm really curious. So you are you see an uh, old abandoned structure. You want to make a picture. How are you determining whether to use the 4, 5, 8, 10 or digital on the ground? So I get it with the, with the plane pictures, but how are you determining between those three cameras when you're on the ground? Well, that's, uh, you know, I actually just gave a lecture about this showing how you know, I, I was obsessed with these grand houses that were standing all alone out in the prairie. They're actually, in many cases, they were houses purchased through the Sears catalog in the early mm-hmm. 1900s. <laughs> and these ranchers who had just come into some money uh, built these grand houses out in the middle of nowhere. And they're still there in, you know, not many, mm-hmm. but there's some. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd photograph them from the air, obviously with digital, then I'd come on the ground, I'd photograph them with the eight by 10. I also had a kind of enormous pole. It looked like a giant light mm-hmm. stand. That I, was like, I, I saw a picture of yeah, that thing. It was yeah. like, like 50 feet. That was a super nuisance to deal with. That was a digital setup. You know, on the ground, I'd like to shoot 8x10 if I could. I had a couple lenses that I loved and I, I, you know, I was still really enamored of the look of film. But there were other times where, you know, maybe the light was passing really quickly or you know, some other conditions where I, I could just work m- so much more speedily with the uh, with the digital. So, I mean, I mean that is part of it is it's just quicker, Time. quicker setup. Yeah. You, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. So, I mean, we're sort of running out of time. I, I You've made so many in- incredibly comprehensive and really captivating projects. I love Blue Alabama. So I want you to talk about that a little bit, but I also do want to, I want to hear about what you're doing now because I am interested in, in the fact that you're, you're working close to home. But let, let's talk about Blue Alabama, which has more portraits in it, I think. And yeah. so, yeah, tell me about that. So, so every book, I'm trying to do something different. So Detroit was on, you know, the home ground and decay, 
Dirt Meridian dealt with a lot of empty space and the kind of legacy of the frontier era, the homesteading era. As I mentioned, I had lived in New Orleans. My parents were from the South and I always wanted to do a project about the South. So I started looking around. I was in the low country in South Carolina. I was in the Delta in Mississippi, you know, dealing with Mount Eggleston and uh, back in New Orleans. <laughs> and I ended up in Alabama because Alabama has, first of all, I met some great people there who were so supportive. And then, you know, it turns out Alabama has an amazing history of photography in the 20th century. I mean, Charles Moore and uh, Walker Evans and a um, lot of amazing photography. So there was a lot to play off. Mm -hmm. And also, obviously, I was shooting more portraits because there's such a deep connection between people and place in the mm -hmm. South. Mm -hmm. And people are so rooted in their their language and their, their whole way of being. And the fact that they all know each other and, and, and often related to each other. So that connection. So again, trying to do something quite different. I mean, there is some decay. There are interiors, obviously, not that many landscapes, but again, trying something new, incorporating these portraits into this project. So I, I kind of see those three books as, um, you know, different aspects of the kind of inner empire of America, you mm -hmm. know, the inland empire mm -hmm. overlooked. And, and uh, okay. And, and so now we come to uh, the Hudson Valley, you know, yep. moved up here, Basically in 2019, pre-COVID, like six months before COVID, all my friends are like, how? Prescient, how you, yeah. How did you do that? You had a bad uh, feeling. Yeah. So I guess, you know, lockdown comes and I start shooting just because, you know, I can't really go as I'm driving like in a circumference of an hour around Kingston. So that's mm -hmm. kind of Albany to Newburgh. And then I have a great assistant who went to Bard. And so we just started adventuring. And then, you know, as I'm working... You know, I don't really want to do Detroit on the Hudson and, mm -hmm. you know, COVID. So it's a little hard to do portraits exactly. And then I slowly realized that what's so unique about this place is this combination of this, the light, the weather, the conditions between the mountains and the river, and then the history of this place, you know, mm -hmm. that's a river school mm -hmm. and the, you kind of how this river basically shaped the identity of not only New York City, but the, the country in a sense. So that combination of natural conditions and and history really intrigued me. So I'm playing off those ideas and and again trying to do something different. I'm not really a traditional landscape photographer. I don't I haven't really shot beautiful nature before. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a great challenge to me to do something I haven't done before. So that's what I've been doing. You know, whether it's successful, I you know you'll. <laughs> You can be the judge of that, but it's been a, a very physically challenging. I think I've done something like 200 shoots so far. I mean, a lot of work. And, uh, you know, there's a handful of pictures that, I, that I, I'm eager to uh, kind of present publicly this fall. Well, I, I've seen a number of those pictures because you shared some of them at your CPW talk. Um, I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think you, uh, I think you're onto something. <laughs> so. Cool, cool. Well, um. we'll see. You know, there's always a little anxiety before something new, and then it's a question of what I'm going to do next, too. But that's that's my <laughs> one thing at a that's time. My one thing at a time. Yeah. Exactly. So how important, I'll just end with this this question, how important is it at this point in your life to be challenging yourself, to 
you know, be coming up with a, a new way of working. And uh, as you said, you you really are not a traditional landscape photographer. And now you're you're making some sort of traditional Hudson Valley School type landscapes. And 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 so, how how important is that for you to keep you sort of motivated, or do you not need that? To, I mean, I I don't know. I shouldn't have asked the question with an assumption in it. Um, I'm thinking for a second. I I think that's I think it's paramount. I don't like to do things I've done before. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like, to, or not to do, I mean, even though you said I've been on kind of making the same kind of pictures, I feel like yes and no. There's certain threads, but they're, you know, I'm always with each. It's like Mission Impossible. You know, you assemble a new team for each project. I mm-hmm. mean, <laughs> I like to have a new, every new assignment, you have to create a new team. And so I, I think that's part of it. And, and you know, I, I might have mentioned this or not, but it's very important that people I work with, like I'm always in a kind of little team and I'm influenced by those people. Hopefully I influence them as well. But uh, so every, there's a slightly different twist to everything. And that's what keeps it fresh for me. I literally can't, I don't want to repeat myself too closely. You know, I think what I was saying earlier is I think there are hallmarks of an Andrew Moore photograph, but I completely agree with you that each project is different and the emphasis is different. And not only is the emphasis different, but there are completely new elements. And I see all of that in the work. And yet at the same time, there is a way in which it is recognizable as an Andrew Moore photograph. And I think that that's great, frankly. It's, you know, I think that that's really wonderful. I, I, you you know, you have real conviction. And, you know, to me, that's, that sort of implies a certain authenticity, right? Um, That you're comfortable with your drive and not just throwing spaghetti at the wall or, you know, being focused on what's going on in the art world at any given time. You're making your pictures. And I think that that's incredibly important. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm not really that focused on what's going on in the art world. Maybe yeah, I should good. be, but no, I, you shouldn't be. I, Don't be. you know, I, I'm happy for what other people are doing, but you know, I got to do what I find is important to me. You know, honestly. Well, that's that's the key. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I really appreciate it. And I don't know about you, but I'll be at the uh, the photo fair this weekend. Over... The Kingston Photo Fair at yeah. CPW. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I look forward to it. Yeah. yeah CPW is rocking it. Yeah, it's, they are. Yeah. As I said, it's amazing what's happening here at Kingston. I am so it's like I'm here like I moved and then like they moved and I was like, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and no, you're, and there you are in Woodstock. So, and hey, here I am. And su- we've got super cool, great people, a lot of, a lot yeah. of really great photo people right yeah. in the area. Absolutely. So it's super yeah. fun. Well, I hope I see you this weekend. I'll, I'll buy you a okay. beer or a milkshake, whatever you prefer, and, okay. uh, or a cup Let's of coffee. And, cool. um, and thanks again and be well. And I hope the, Torrential rains haven't uh, flooded you out too badly. It's <laughs> no, like, no, uh, we actually make pictures of some of that. So, oh, you good. Know, okay. Take, you know, that's my next thing, global warming at home. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, here it is. <laughs> but anyway, this has been super enjoyable. Thank you, Sasha. Okay. Really great thank, questions. And th- thanks, nice. Andrew. Okay, okay. Be well. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chovendalton of Real Photo Show. 
Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.